This is The Weekly for Friday, March 15th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. They donate millions of dollars to some of Washington's leading think tanks and billions to some of America's leading colleges and universities, and even provide supplemental newspapers inside the Washington Post, Roll Call, and other leading publications. So what do these foreign countries get in return? In short, they try to influence the decision makers and shape public opinion in a way that would benefit their respective country. It is the topic Tom Frank has been looking into, and he joins us on The Weekly. The CQ cover story is titled Global Sway, How Foreign Money Helps Shape Washington Policy. Our guest here in our C-SPAN studios is Tom Frank, and you focus on university money, the media, and this. Quote, Washington is the Vatican of think tanks. Why is this important to understand? It shows how Washington-centric the think tanks are. And, you know, a think tank can be anywhere. It can be located anywhere. And But the fact that they're all in Washington and all literally within like four blocks of each other's shows that they're not just about doing research for research's sake. They're about doing research for federal policy's sake. And there's a big difference between you know, a think tank that may be in, you know, Boston or San Francisco or someplace versus a think tank that's um, five blocks from the White House. Um, Those think tanks, the ones that are in Washington, are the ones that really help set the federal policy agenda. And those are the ones that are targeted by foreign donors that are targeted and, and domestic donors as well to try to influence the debate. And in some ways, Think tanks are really just, uh, they're just an arm of the sort of uh, Washington policy media industrial complex, if you will. And lobbying a think tank is, um, it goes hand in hand with lobbying the White House or members of Congress or administrative agencies. And one of the examples that you put in the recent headlines involving Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post opinion writer who suffered a horrific death, and how Saudi Arabia was able to essentially slow down the reaction. Well, this uh, it, it, it's a little bit of a historical piece at this point, because what we know now is is a lot more than what we knew in the first weeks when this happened. You have to really go back to early to mid-October of 2018 when his death was first reported, and there was a lot of uncertainty about what was happening. The information was coming from Turkey. It was coming from President Erdogan, from Turkish intelligence. So it wasn't entirely credible. Um, the U.S. wasn't you know, they didn't, the U.S. didn't send the CIA over there for a couple of weeks. And so into this vacuum, think tanks were able to step and to try to inform the debate that really at that point, it was, um, y- you know, it was like the first inning of a baseball game. It could have gone either way. No side was winning. And uh, the Saudi side and the Qatari side were both trying to influence the debate. And and you saw these very different reactions from different think tanks that just happened to align with which countries in the Middle East support them. 
To that point, you quote Ben Freeman. He is the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative. And he said in your piece, quote, the Saudis have done a great job spreading millions across D.C. think tanks. And that's true. And the Saudis aren't the only ones. Um, the, the Qataris have done it as well, the Emiratis. Uh, and Ben's point was that some of the think tanks, not all of them, but some of them were very slow to condemn Saudi Arabia and were um, somewhat supportive. And I use the example in there of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which gets some money from Saudi Arabia, and um, how they were uh, skeptical about a lot of the initial details that were coming out about Khashoggi's death and, and the reports that he had been tortured or dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, um, and also CSIS referring to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as this change agent, as a you know force for good. Um, and then I think I also use the example of how Brookings, which gets money from the Qataris, who are now the enemy of the Saudis, take a totally different take. They were sharply critical from day one of Saudi Arabia and of Mohammed bin Salman, calling him, I think the word was uh, a, a bully or a uh, basically implying that, that he is this young person just not up to the task of running a country. I want to come back to the issue of think tanks in just a moment, but your piece also moves beyond just Washington, D.C. think tanks to university endowments. And over a period of six years, $9.2 billion in foreign money to 148 universities, and half of that went to eight leading universities. And they're not just eight leading universities. They're eight leading universities with major influential foreign policy think tank research institutions that also produce um, a lot of diplomats-to-be and uh, people who go into this area. So places like Harvard and Georgetown and Johns Hopkins and Texas A&M, which are known as the sort of um, farm teams for the State Department and for Congress and the administration and think tanks themselves. Um, so this isn't just, uh, some, you know, rich alumni living overseas, making large contributions. These are foreign governments in many cases, giving tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in gifts to places like the Belfer Center at Harvard, the School of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins, uh, the, um, you know, Tufts Fletcher School of Diplomacy and schools like that, that are, really the the prominent um, universities when it comes to foreign affairs in the United States. We should point out this is an extensive piece, the cover story of CQ, titled Shadow Influence. And Tom Frank, how did you approach this? How did you research all of this? So a lot of the research was doing, was um, trying to get uh, original data to try to one of my goals was to try to quantify to the extent possible the the amount of money that foreign entities were putting into influencing Washington policy. So looking at databases that um, show, for example, lobbying disclosure reports, um, Department of Education 
every year publishes a spreadsheet showing the exact amount of money that's been given from foreign entities to universities. Um, some think tanks actually disclose their donors by by name um, with dollar ranges. So you know, a million to two million dollars came from uh, you know individual X or company Y. So running as wide a dragnet as I could on all the publicly available records to try to quantify as much as I can. And one of the goals of the story was to, to try to put it all in one place and say, look at all this. Here's, here's the amount and here are the many, many different forms it's take. It's not just lobbying and it's not just, you know, Russian internet trolls posting things on Facebook about Hillary Clinton. And as you point out in the piece, some of the laws date back to the 1930s when Nazi Germany was uh, in its ascendancy. So why is that important to understand the laws that we have today? So I, what you're talking about is the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which was enacted in 1938. And the law is still, it's, it's the same law today governs disclosure of lobbying on behalf of foreign entities. And it's a law that um, a lot of people think needs some updating, that it was conceived when members of Congress were concerned about Nazi propaganda, that Nazi propaganda would appear in schools and uh, in, in, you know leaflets and whatnot. So Congress wanted to know who was paying for any sort of propaganda items. Um, but since then, foreign influence really isn't about propaganda so much anymore as it is about lobbying. And there are a number of holes in federal lobbying laws that enable foreign entities to escape some of the disclosure requirements that Congress intends. Your piece begins with a trip that began on August the 6th, 2017, by pro-Israel organizations and the Israeli government, involving 31 Republican House members. Explain. So this was a trip. Um, it was sponsored by a group called the American Israel Education Pro uh, Foundation, and that is a, an American group uh, funded by Americans, and what it does is it takes members of Congress on trips to Israel. Um, it takes, it's taken hundreds, thousands of members of Congress over the years on these trips. And these are trips that are, they're, they're basically lobbying trips. You go, if you're a member of Congress, and you meet with all sorts of Israeli officials. In the trip I use as an example, they met with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They take tours of the country, and they get, it's, it's really, it's like a crash course in Israeli security 101, and they learn about the challenges that Israel faces, the threats that it faces, the importance of Israel as a U.S. ally, as a stabilizing force in the Middle East, um, and Israel is not by any stretch of the imagination the only country that does this. In fact, a majority of the countries in the world do this as well. Um, this group, the American Israel Education Foundation, um, is the most prolific and, and does it more than any other nonprofit or entity. And um, these, as I say, these are lobbying trips. In total, 61-person entourage, the price tag nearly $670,000, or about $11,000 per person on average. Is there anything wrong with this? I don't, I don't say, think there's anything wrong with it. I think um, I think the disclosure 
is is not strong. Um, so the House at least has disclosure. The Senate disclosure is um, if you want to find out what kind of trips like this any senator has taken, you have to find the web page. And then you have to click on a member's name and then scroll through these disclosure forms. They scan in one by one. It's um, incredibly cumbersome, and it makes it extremely difficult for the public to know exactly who is going where and, and who is paying for it. Um, you know, it, lobbying is legal. These trips are, are legal. They're allowed. Uh, there was a crackdown on some of them, um, like after the Jack Abramoff scandals, um, but they're still allowed. But the disclosure is, um, is it's there, but it's a very, very difficult process to uh, get at who is paying for this, how much it costs, what they're doing, where they're going. Uh, you know, it took me, a journalist who had nothing else to do but write this story, you know, days to go through these records, and that was for only one trip, and there are hundreds of these trips. So the issue really is the disclosure. So, Tom Frank, you clearly did your research because you found that between 2013 through 2018, House members and aides took 2,379 foreign trips paid for by foreign governments and foundations. I did my research, um, and uh, two points. First, uh, the House makes it a little bit easier because they put all of this into a spreadsheet. Um, but if you really want to analyze and understand it, you have to have database skills. Uh, fortunately, I have those. So I was able to compile six different databases and run some queries using some software. Um, so the House, as I say, has, has done a lot more in terms of uh, disclosure than the Senate has, but it's still not easy. You still have to, first of all, know where to go, and secondly, know how to analyze data and you know your average person on the street is going to open up one of these spreadsheets if they even can and have no idea what they're looking at in your piece one of the photographs paul manafort who is now in jail his second sentencing this past week what are the lessons from his involvement with ukraine and his lobbying here in washington dc what paul manafort really showed is um how easy it is to avoid disclosure of lobbying that you're doing for a foreign entity. Um, that was, of, of the many, many charges against Paul Manafort, one of them was failing to disclose his lobbying on behalf of some pro-Russian Ukrainian groups. And this was to the tune of uh, more than $10 million. And he just didn't file the paperwork, and so there was no record um, at least no official record that he was lobbying on behalf of this uh, this pro-Russian um, Ukrainian group. So really, with Manafort, as far as this goes, um, that's the lesson for him. You know, the, the foreign agent registration, the foreign lobbying is overseen by the Justice Department, and the Justice Department has brought a total of set, well, up to, up to, 2016, a total of seven criminal cases over a span of 50 years uh, concerning violations of the Foreign Lobbying Act. Um, and that just goes to show that 
this is not a law where you have to worry about doing everything right, filing all the forms and so forth. Uh, it's a very, very easy law to evade. At least it was until Manafort came along. Um, and I think since then, the Justice Department has realized it has to take this program a lot more seriously. And, and the Justice Department has done taken some steps to do some more aggressive investigation of violations of foreign lobbying laws. But I guess the follow-up question is, will Congress take it seriously? You quote Craig Holman. He is a lobbyist for the advocacy group Public Citizen. He said in your piece, quote, Mueller's indictments have been a big eye-opener, but still there are loopholes galore. Well, sure. I think Congress is taking it seriously. Congress um, had a number of bills in the 115th Congress, which ended at the end of last year. Um you know, like a lot of things, they got mired down in some debates. Uh, they couldn't get through some uh, policy disputes. They're going to try again. Um, I think that there is a lot of impetus to try to make some reforms. And I think that um, Manafort has sort of been the tip of the iceberg and that he, he has exposed a lot of the loopholes that Craig Holman was talking about there. Another component in your story involving foreign adversaries like China and Russia and how they have used their own state-run media getting their message through the Washington Post, the New York Times, Roll Call, and other publications. Explain that part of the story. Well, so I am uh, I'm one of those rare people who is a home subscriber to the Washington Post, which I suppose uh, you know tells you how old I am. And uh, I forget what day it would come. Uh, it was one of those inserts in maybe it was the Wednesday Post next to the food section, and it was this broadsheet insert called China Daily. Um, I, I never really read anything about it. I assumed it was just some advertising. Well, it turns out that China Daily, inserted every week in the Washington Post, is a publication of the Chinese government, and it gives a very pro-China spin. And the fact that a publication put out by the Chinese government is getting delivered with the Washington Post, with roll call, and so forth— that gives you a real idea of how pervasive the the media campaigns are by some of these countries like China and Russia. You mentioned Russia. So Russia, of course, has RT, the uh, Russian news agency, which has a big and growing presence in the U.S. Um, you know, when I Google for things, a lot of times I'll get back an RT story and Unless you're really, you know, if you understand the media landscape, you're not going to know that RT is a publication of the Russian government. And in fairness, who can keep track of who's doing what on the Internet? And it's one of these ways that foreign governments are, are taking advantage of the open media landscape in the U.S. to disseminate their message. These are messages aimed at the general public, not at lobbyists or think tank analysts or administration officials. This is just another form um, that foreign lobbying really takes to try to influence public opinion. So let me go back to the cover story of CQ titled Global Sway, How Foreign Money Helps Shape Washington Policy. Why should Americans care? Why is this important? Well, I think uh, the 2016 election is exhibit A on that. And 
you know, the intelligence agencies came together and put out a report two years ago, January 2017, stating definitively that Russia tried to influence the 2016 election. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just one example of one country doing one very specific thing using one very specific method, which is social media. Um, it really just opens the door into this enormous cavern of all these different ways that different foreign governments are trying to subtly, quietly manipulate policy in the U.S. toward these countries. Um, and one of the big concerns is, is that people don't really know what's going on, is that a lot of the foreign influence is done in, in such a quiet, subtle way that the public and even lawmakers aren't aware of the fingerprints that are behind things like a, an, an analyst for a think tank coming on C-SPAN and giving his or her opinion about foreign affairs. Nobody necessarily knows that that analyst works for a think tank that's received millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia or China or some other country. Um, and that's the real concerning part, not that there's influence going on, but that there's influence going on and nobody really understands it. This is a well-written and very well-researched story, but at its conclusion, what are your lingering questions? What remains unanswered from your standpoint as a journalist who has been looking into this? So there's a lot that remains unanswered. Um, one of the big, um, what I would call, loopholes has to do with foreign payments to universities. Um, the law that requires these payments to be disclosed is written in such a way that universities only have to disclose very large payments from government entities. Um, so, uh, and when you talk about some of these Middle Eastern countries, um, you know, the line between the private sector and the public sector is very, very hard to discern. So if a, uh, you know, a state-run oil company gives uh, $100 million to University X, the university could conceivably say, well, that's a, that's a private donation because it's a company. Um, and that's just a, um, that's a law that uh, really ends up having almost no meaning because it's, um, there's so little disclosure. And then the other question is, and this is a question about a lot of things, will Congress be able to reach some agreement uh, in the next year or two to try to close these loopholes? It's certainly not going to be easy. None of this stuff ever is. Um, and there are a lot of groups that have a lot of different interests that obviously they all have to be met. Um, but I think the question is, will Congress you know, have the will? Where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and... Um, you know, this is a little bit of a in-the-weeds issue. This isn't, uh, you know, home foreclosures or joblessness. So it's um, it's going to take a real, real concerted effort on a part of a few lawmakers to try to drive this thing because there's not a popular revolt against the, you know, Saudi Arabia giving a couple million dollars to a think tank in Washington. 
But the clear conclusion is that foreign money does, in fact, sway policy and public opinion. Well, if it doesn't, then the foreign governments are wasting an awful lot of money. Um, so, of course, it does. Uh, I don't think that uh, you know the leaders of these countries are dumb, and I don't think they may be rich, but they're not that rich that they can throw billions of dollars around. Um, you know, lobbying works. It works uh, in ways that people often don't see and don't understand. It's not that it's, you know, it's often more defensive. It works because country X got a bill killed, not got a bill passed. Um, and it operates on so many subtle levels um, that it's... Uh, you know, you really have to be a detective to try to untangle the link between uh, foreign money and U.S. policy. It's it's very, very, very hard to do. So let me conclude with this question in terms of moving forward. Are there individuals, Democrats and or Republicans on Capitol Hill, who are pushing for more transparency, who want a better understanding of how foreign dollars influence U.S. policy? Yes, there are a number of people who, uh, in the 115th last year, the last two years, pushed for it. Uh, Senator Duckworth of Illinois, uh, Congresswoman Kaptur of Ohio, Representative Johnson um, of Louisiana. They had different bills. Um, there is general support for the concept of reform. The problem comes in the details, as they say, the devil's in the details. And when you start actually trying to write a law, that's when you're going to start to get some opposition. Um, you know, la last year when there was, uh, there were some efforts to improve enforcement of the Foreign Lobbying Act, and that actually got some pushback from some civil liberties groups because they have generally speaking, concerns about giving law enforcement more power, but they also had some concerns about the intersection of enforcement against lobbying with free speech. Um, and so that's when you get into the wording laws and regulations, um, you get into some real details uh, that are going to raise a lot of concerns. So everyone wants to reform. The real question is, are there people who are people in Congress who are really willing to do the very, very hard work to get some language, to get a measure that can meet with the approval of the very, very diverse group of people that are going to pay attention to this? Bottom line, did anything surprise you when you concluded this piece? Well, the part about foreign payments to universities, I, I had no idea. Um, now, in fairness, some of that is uh, just, you know, some rich alum living in London who decides to give, you know, a million dollars to his or her alma mater. But a lot of it is, uh, you know, the governments of China, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, giving tens of million dollars in gifts to universities. Um, I, nobody should care if a rich alum in London gives a lot of money to his or her alma mater. But why, why are these governments giving money to places like Harvard, which is possibly the last place on earth that needs more money. Um, that was really surprising, and how little awareness there seems to be about that. Um, and also the, just, um, the extent of the donations to think tanks from um, foreign countries 
with whom the U.S. has conflicted relations. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, you know, almost any Middle East country, um, other than Israel, where they're not really democracies. They don't really have the same values. And there was a quote in that. Um, you know, there's a big difference between getting, um, you know, two million dollars from the government of Norway and two million dollars from the government of the United Arab Emirates in terms of the extent to which um, those governments share American interests and American values. Tom Frank, thank you for sharing your research and reporting with our listeners. A reminder that this podcast is available on the web at cspan.org. Thank you for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Steve. You can also download this podcast and other C-SPAN programming on the free C-SPAN radio app. We thank you for listening. 